0: Welcome to PCA One-on-One Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. I'm excited today to talk with Mark Hyman on our PCA One-on-One interviews. Uh, Mark is teaching assistant professor of management in George Washington University's sports management program. He's been writing about youth sports for more than a decade and has published three books on the subject, Until It Hurts, America's Obsession with Youth Sports and How It Harms Our Kids, Concussions in Our Kids with Robert Cantu, a brain surgeon, and um, The Most Expensive Game in Town, The Rising Cost of Youth Sports and the Toll on Today's Families. Mark has written for the New York Times, Sports Illustrated, Time.com, and is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Maryland School of Law. Mark, uh, thanks for being with us today.
1: It's a real pleasure to be with you, Jim. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So you start your book, Until It Hurts, uh, talking about a photo of your 18-month son in the snow. What did that photo mean to you, and why did you start the book with it?
1: Well, because it, it, I think it really symbolizes um, a lot of the kind of dysfunction in youth sports today and I wanted to make the point right up front that uh most of the problems that we see in youth sports I was a part of and I want to take responsibility for that um right at the the start of the book and the photograph as you say was a was a picture of my son uh, playing well actually taking batting practice in the front yard of our home in Baltimore in you know the dead of winter with a blanket of snow on the ground he's dressed up in a, a snowsuit um, and you know the question i raised at the start of the book is why is he taking batting practice in january you know, it was a perfect day for ice fishing why is he taking batting practice hmm. and and uh, the answer i think in part at least was that it was my idea and that even at 18 months i had this thought in the back of my head that if he wasn't taking batting practice there was some other 18, 18 month old somewhere who was and that perhaps he would be at a disadvantage if if I wasn't you know getting him started really early so that's kind of the reason that I started the book in that way
0: you know you 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 say later that um you know there are all kinds of signals that he was not going to be a great baseball player <laughs> including a coach saying directly, your son will not play college baseball, um, what What do you think was your motivation? And I don't mean it like coming from internally. What What were the factors in our society acting on you that caused you to act that way?
1: Well, Jim, I think a lot of it is just hardwired in, in all adults, all parents. Um, I think that we're kind of programmed to see greatness in our kids, and that's that's a good thing um and i think that that many of us see ourselves in our kids and um it's just in our dna to um to, to see our kids as as athletes who can accomplish something and um so that that was part of it and it's a lot of fun to watch your kid playing sports uh, in a public setting and excelling and i think i was caught up in that um i have to say that he was a, a a very good youth baseball player and, you know, at age eight, nine, 10, and into high school, he was a very competitive player. And I think that can be very seductive. And as a parent, you tend to lose sight of the fact that, uh, you know, they should be out there playing for fun and that it really isn't a career path. It's just an opportunity for them to have fun and learn some life lessons.
0: Yeah. I I have to, uh, confess also, um, right after I finished my first book, positive coaching building character and self-esteem through sports um it hadn't been printed yet but um i was done with it and i was at a junior high school basketball game that my son and a friend's son were playing and i was sitting next to my friend and um at a certain point i started waving my glasses at the official uh the idea being you need these more than i do cuz you're obviously blind out there and my friend said, turned to me and said, Jim, I, I'm so shocked. You're usually so positive. Um, and I'd written a book on positive coaching, but it right. still got to me. It's like um, you know, there's something really insidious about our desire for our kids to do well in sports.
1: I think that you know we all are fighting these impulses all the time, Jim. And and the, the secret is um, managing them. And, and those of us who manage them reasonably well, I think our kids have a, a really good experience in sports, and more often than not, they become passionate about it. They, they carry on at sports throughout their lives, and and but it's it's a constant battle. And, and you know, I, I don't think there is such a thing as, as a bad sports parent or, or a good one. It's it's all of us grappling with the emotions that we feel and trying to keep them. Um, you know, trying to manage them effectively.
0: You know, I um I was talking to a fellow the other day who who uh psychiatrist and he's um knows a lot about the brain and and we were talking about parents on the sidelines, coaches too, but parents on the sidelines just going nuts. And he coined a phrase I don't know if he coined a phrase, he used a phrase I hadn't heard before and I love it. I'm trying to think of how we can Use this phrase in positive coaching alliance work. Um, he talked about the amygdala capture. The amygdala is a part of the brain that, that uh, you know, is there that when the 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 bear or the saber tooth tiger is after us, it gives us the energy to take off. Um, and he described. I just I just had a great view, a great image of parents all over the country, have, uh, suffering amygdala capture, and going nuts yeah. on the
1: sidelines. Yeah, I want to get a T-shirt with with that uh, slogan on it, Jim. I hope you'll send one to me.
0: (laughs) That may be what we – we definitely want to to use that because I think it – you know, when people get angry, they often feel like they're being strong. But usually when you lose your temper, it's because of weakness. You know, you're not able to control yourself. And I I thought the amygdala capture – uh, capture that you know in 1952 one of the things I love reading um, reading books is, is the history and I've been working in full-time in youth sports more than full-time youth sports for almost 20 years now and and writing books and coaching for quite a few years before that but often you don't know about the history and in 1952 the National Education Association came out with this report kind of blasting youth sports and I want to um, just quote one line from that uh, the exaggerated idea of the importance of youth sports in our society. Why, and that was in 1952, where you know, no 24 7 sports coverage. You know, Stanford uh, played UCLA last night on Thursday night. Um, you know, it's like it, it's just taken over everything. This is 1952. Why do you think there is such an exaggerated idea of the importance of youth sports in this country?
1: well if it 's okay with you i'd like to kind of take the question in a slightly different direction and and just sure. acknowledge the fact that you know you and I or or maybe two other people could have been having pretty much the same conversation that we 're having not not just fifty years ago but maybe seventy five years ago because that 's how long ago there was concern and tension about this issue of whether sports for kids was becoming too competitive and no longer was really reflecting, you know, the important. It's um, no longer b- being uh, uh, the direction of these sports wasn't really healthy for kids. Seventy-five years ago, um, so yeah. it's very interesting to me why we haven't really um, addressed the problem in a in a constructive way and gotten beyond that. Um, and and that in that way i think the history is very interesting um as you say uh in the, in the 50s the, the national education association and the american medical medical association were raising concerns about the direction of youth sports and you know in, in my reporting w- what i think is very interesting is that the real one of the real seismic shifts in youth sports actually occurred in the 1930s Because prior to that, youth sports was was organized and managed by adults, but the adults in charge of youth sports, for the most part, were educators and those who had a background in child development. Um, Most youth sports were were school-based or based in places like the YMCA. And parents had a, a relatively modest peripheral role in the sports lives of their kids, and And that changed uh in the in the mid to late nineteen thirties, most notably by the uh, establishment of Little League baseball in nineteen thirty nine and Little League, of course, was a, a parent run organization and you know got very popular very fast and spread all over the country and Since that time um view sports has pretty much been managed by parents, and that transition from sports as school based and run by educators to um an activity that's really managed by parents. That that was a very big deal and changed the the shape and I think the the emphasis in youth sports.
0: You know, um I've uh w- the positive coach lines it took us about sixteen years to boil our mission statement down to four words. Uh youth sports is about better athletes, better people. And uh, some people say, you know, um, you're really about – sports is just a vehicle to develop better people. You know, it could be anything. It could be music, you know, drama, whatever. Um, and I, I find myself kind of rebelling against that because it feels like sports, competition, games, and I realize those are all slightly different terms, but I feel like it's it's in our DNA as, as people that – that um and also you know the the sort of humdrum lives most of us have um you know if when we when when I can I can coach my son's baseball team and we can have a victory and uh you know how many victories do you get in your in your regular life but i i, I do want to go back to that idea that i feel like sports is important in itself it's not just a vehicle to develop better people any thoughts
1: I think, you know, I I think we should kind of agree at the start that sports are uh, a wonderful thing for kids. I know that, you know, sometimes people read my books and they wonder whether I am an advocate for youth sports. And the answer is absolutely yes. I think that sports are really indispensable. There's nothing to replace the experience of playing organized sports for kids. And and I'm all in favor of it. Um, I think, you know, my reservations come in, in terms of the way that sports to a large extent reflect the the needs and you know the the emotional and economic interests of adults sometimes rather than the kids that that's where my uh, concerns lie um i i think that competitive sports are great and um i I think that uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, preferring winning to losing and aspiring to be a high school player and to play in college and beyond. Um, But I do think that for the majority of kids, uh, the, the objective should be those that are really easily attainable for them, that are attainable for all kids, regardless of their ability. And, you know, those are things that uh, the Positive Coaching Alliance does a great job of emphasizing things like sportsmanship and perseverance and the importance of, you know, taking direction from a coach. And importantly, getting in the habit of being active and taking that um, passion about being active, taking that into adulthood, Um, those things, any kid playing new sports, he's the last kid on the bench, um, he can benefit. Um, from being exposed to those values, and 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 that's part of the reason that I think it's it's so uh, such a concern that that the dropout rate in youth sports is so high. Um, this is, you know, seventy percent of kids are dropping out of youth sports by age thirteen, and and all of those kids who are, are no longer participating after that age um, are not um benefiting from um the life lessons that, that they could attain in youth sports. So um yeah, I, I think competitive esports is great and and I have no objection to it. But but I do think that to too to large an extent eSports now is is tailored in ways to meet the needs of those most competitive kids, sometimes at the expense of kids who just want to get out there and play.
0: Yeah. You know, um, one of the chapters in the most expensive game is called "Selling Hope," and um, it's really about the rise of the, what I call the youth sports entrepreneur. Um, you know, maybe I made it to the major leagues for a year, maybe I made it to Triple A, um, and but I know a lot about baseball, and I would love to be make a living playing baseball or soccer or whatever sport you you want to. Talk about, and so if I can give, convince parents to uh, let me train their kids, have their kids come to my camps, have their kids be on my travel teams, uh, I can make a uh, a living doing what I love. And you know, I have to say, as I'm saying this, in a way, I'm a youth sports entrepreneur myself because uh, I saw an opportunity to you know, not make a lot of money, but to 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 try to have an impact on um, you know what's just a fantastic. Uh, potential character development program in this country. Um, so that was a long-winded lead-in to you know the. Can you talk about the? Oh, well, the other thing was about selling hope. Is um, there's a lot more hope sold than can be delivered when the hope is your kid is going to play on a high school team or make it to college or pros. And if you could just comment on the the youth sports entrepreneurs and the impact they've had.
1: Sure. Uh, Let's just talk about college recruiting and all of the commerce that's grown up around that. Um, I I think the conversation begins with a pretty depressing fact for those of us who have aspirations for our kids to play sports in college. And that is that five percent, roughly five percent of high school varsity athletes will ever play a down or a minute or an inning in college. Five percent. So that's that's a pretty small percentage, and that includes kids who are playing in Division three, who are not getting athletic scholarships, and kids in Division one and two who are getting maybe some athletic aid, but not a full ride. So the odds of your kid playing, you know, going through rec sports in high school and playing college sports are very, very small. I mean, they're slightly better than getting hit by a meteor in your backyard. Now, having said that, there are many of us, myself included, I have my hand raised, um, who have spent a lot of money in pursuit of that dream. And the number of, of ways that you can spend money is is staggering. And I think the people who are not living in this bubble, it's it's pretty hilarious. The things that parents will do in order to supposedly put their their child in a, a better position to get the attention of the college coach. And it ranges from, you know, of course, signing your kid up for a, a travel or an elite team, um, to um you know, traveling across the country multiple times a summer for uh, tournaments where coaches may or may not see your child, um, to showcases and, you know, my, my son did this where, you you know, you pay two or three hundred dollars and there are 400 kids who show up at the baseball field and then 20 or 30 uh, college coaches show up and, and watch them play. And, and you know, maybe one or two has the ability to maybe be a college player. So I won't go on. I could go on a lot longer. But the point is that we're we're a very vulnerable uh, population of consumers because we really want this for our children and for ourselves. And we're being encouraged by these entrepreneurs to, uh, you know, they, they're selling hope. They give us uh, encouragement that this could happen for our child. And it's uh, it's unfortunate because very, very few of these kids are going to play in college, and a lot of money is kind of, you know, just poured down the drain in pursuit of that dream.
0: You know, the other thing that strikes me about it is just how uh, how little joy there is around it sometimes. Um, you know, the, the, the um, I, I saw a documentary about Steve Jobs recently and, and read Walter Isaacson's book about the uh, biography of Steve Jobs because, you know, I'm... We're here in Silicon Valley, and he was just an iconic figure. And um, one of the things they said about Steve Jobs is he had a reality distortion field. That you'd be talking to him, and you'd be nodding your head. He'd, he'd talk about some idea, and you'd be nodding your head, yeah, wow, that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then once he left, you'd say, wow, that was a stupid idea. And I feel like, uh, I feel like. Um, there's this reality distortion field just like you said, if if I, I think back on some of the things I did and thought about my son, who's now thirty eight and it was very clear, he's very skilled uh in a lot of ways, but he didn't have foot speed. He just wasn't fast. And and you know, any normal non distorted thinking person would have realized he's probably uh, not even going to be very, very um, successful in high school, let alone college. But of course I didn't see any of that stuff. And, you know, my, my comparable uh, vision uh visual is to your, you know, your son out in the, in the, the snow trying to take batting practice was my son ended up building a set of uh, plyometric boxes because he knew he wasn't wasn't fast enough and I think you know back like okay where'd you get that idea? Well you know he got it from me. So anyway, I just feel like we're in this reality distortion field and, and once we get past it, get out of it, we look back and say, Oh man, why did I do that? That was crazy.
1: Now Jim, one of the things that that I suggest to um to groups when I Speak is, and particularly when I'm speaking to to local, you know, rec league uh, boards and things like that, is that they try to to include on their board a parent whose kids are now grown and no longer playing these sports,
0: and who has an
1: institutional memory about that experience, and can speak to the parents of the the younger kids and explain, you know, give them a sense of perspective uh, about you know what you're going to be feeling when your kid is 8 years old and pitching for the first time and uh you know what it really means to win a championship when your child is 11 and and to kind of um you know I think it's important for parents to, to understand that um it's uh they need to take kind of the long view of their child's sports life and the goal should be to help your child reach his or her potential as an athlete whatever that might be, and that, you know, winning a championship at age seven may in some ways not further that child's sports, um, you know, career at at 15 or 16. You know, I think we're missing that. We're missing the wisdom from parents whose kids have grown up who've made mistakes, but who are now out of the system and not in a position to help the younger parents.
0: That's a brilliant idea. I've never heard that before, but you know, having somebody who's gone through it and and uh yeah, no I, I, on the board. I I really like that. But let's let's talk about um concussions because you know, what we've been talking about now uh are, are things that can be harmful to kids but not actually kill them. <clears throat> um and I know you and, and Dr. Cantu and I I think I called him a uh, brain surgeon, which I don't think is exactly right, or maybe he is a brain surgeon, um, but had a neurosurgery at uh um in Boston, Boston University. Um, what about concussions? Is it is it seem kinda of crazy that we've got um that we're encouraging kids to play sports where they get their heads banged?
1: Well I think there are a category of sports, collision sports um where kids are at risk and we're not entirely sure how great that risk is and the challenge is deciding what we're going to do um, as a society before we have all the answers and you know in some ways it's like the um, debate and evolution of the tobacco um, health um, crisis for for years and years we had a sense that you know smoking cigarettes was not great for you, but there was not conclusive evidence. Some people elected to stop smoking before the Surgeon General, you know, passed judgment on on tobacco and and the cancer risk. And I think that's basically where we are in youth sports. Um, you know, t- children. All of this I've learned from you know sitting with Dr. Cantu for for many many hours and talking to him about his concerns. Um, and one of the ideas that he shared with me is that the children are not miniature adults in terms of um, the development of their brains. Um, their heads are relatively large for the size of their bodies, and their brains are, are just more vulnerable. They're not fully developed. So when a kid gets hit in a football game, for instance, their head is going to shake more violently than, than that of an adult. Their they're necks are weak and their heads are big. And, um, you know, that violent shaking inside of the skull is not good for a kid's head. And, and there's a limit to what you can do to, to protect a kid. Um So Dr. Cantu's view is that kids should not be playing tackle football until age 14, that, that they should be active and that they should be playing football, but it should be flag football and that in soccer kids absolutely should be playing soccer and enjoying the game and and learning the skills, but that they should not be heading the ball until age 14. And he has a number of other ideas, recommendations about modifying the rules or equipment in sports like lacrosse and field hockey and and even baseball. Um, But you would be surprised, Jim, I think, at the pushback from um, the sport organizations and from some parents about this idea of, of modifying collision sports in ways that um, deviate from the way the game is played by adults.
0: Yeah, I um, I was talking with Chris Nowinski with the Sports Legacy Institute, who's worked closely with uh, Dr. Cantu on this and. Uh, Chris played football at Harvard, and then he went into um, professional wrestling. I think he was called the Harvard guy. That was his name. And, right. and he got concussions uh, from wrestling because, you know, whether you believe it's, um, um, you know, it's a, a drama as opposed to a real competition, people are really thrown around. And I was talking to him because he and I both love football and um you know, you know what's the future of football? And he, he made it sound pretty simple. He said if kids don't tackle, if they play flag football until they're in high school, and then they play high school football, and there's concussion protocols, and you cut down on the contact and practice, um, and then a very, very small percentage of those kids are going to play football in college uh, or pro. And, you know, the kids who go on to play college football or pro football – you know, there's an issue there, but th- that's a decision that's being made for you know, on an individual basis. And it sounded pretty simple, like, yeah, if we could just uh, get, um, you know, cut back, do away with tackle football until you're in high school, and just what, what Chris said. But, of course, um, that touches – talk about the amygdala. That touches some really deep feelings in uh, Amer- American psyche, I think, that, um, you know, kids – 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th graders wouldn't be knocking each other around on the football field. You know, it's interesting. I've heard
1: people who are advocates for tackle football for, for kids say that there is something irreplaceable about playing tackle football as a child, that it builds character and teamwork and camaraderie in a way that cannot be replaced by any other activity. And I think these people sincerely believe that, and they say it in a very sincere way. And I, you know, I find myself thinking, did Abe Lincoln play tackle football? I, I don't think he did, yet he seemed to have uh, exemplary character and judgment and was a team player. So I, I don't accept that argument. And, and I'm persuaded you – know, Dr. Cantu has a saying that I th- very simple, but I think is very wise. And it, he, he says, no head trauma – is good head trauma, and the more you take, the greater the risk we don't really we can't calibrate that risk, and we don't know what the long term effects might be, but for parents, I think the important message is there are ways you know it's not football or no football. there are many ways to rethink yeah. football and reduce the head trauma, whether it be as as you say champ, whether it be reducing the number of practices during the week where, where hitting is permitted or modifying the rules regarding tackling. Um, There there are lots of ways to, um, to make the sport safer. And and I think we've yet to really have that conversation in a serious way.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, I was just thinking about the, the controversy too about heading in soccer. Um, you know, as somebody who never played soccer, and uh, the ha- the idea of of a, a sport where you didn't use your hands just was uh, foreign to me. Um, mm-hmm. So there's so much to learn uh, about how to control a ball with your foot, or your 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 you know the rest of your body that doesn't involve the head at all. And so, you know, again, as someone who didn't play soccer, but looking at uh, what you would lose if kids didn't head the ball until they were, you know, 14 or whatever. Um, they could just get really, really good at these other things. And I think the same way – I actually had a conversation with Bill Walsh uh, a, a couple of years before he died. He was a big supporter of positive coaching. Lines, and he also felt that, um, you know, the the test of manhood style of football was really harmful that he said, you know, get some kid who's been waiting to play football forever, and he finally gets to go. You know, maybe he's nine or ten years old. He finally gets to go to football practice, and the first thing the coach has him do, do is, you know, square off against somebody else who may be bigger and stronger, and then smash into each other. Um, the kid has not learned anything about football. He hasn't learned to love the game, um, and often that's that's the end of his football. Football career, so it is. You know, it is again. I'm somebody who loves football, and I want it to uh, to survive. Um, and it doesn't seem like the end of the world if if kids play flag football uh, until they get into high school.
1: But well, what a, a great advocate for this issue, Bill Walsh would be if he were alive today. I, I think I think he would be a very powerful spokesman for this idea of just being open to rethinking the rules for kids. We're not changing the NFL, really. We're just talking about should a seven-year-old be strapping on a helmet and and playing by the same rules that adults do? Now, I wanted to make one other point, if I could. In in the books that I've written and the the articles, I I have to say that there's just so much wisdom in the medical community about youth sports. I think some of the most thoughtful people, And people who really have the best perspective on what youth sports really should be and could be are pediatricians, orthopedic surgeons, um, sports medicine physicians. There's just so much that we could tap into. And it's interesting to me when, you know, you hear um, parents or others um, saying that, you know, they think football is safe because the coach of the team um, believes that that football is safe, uh, and and they they're not they they don't pay as much attention to the the medical advice that they might be getting. So, you now I, I think we if we paid more attention to what our, our family pediatrician was saying and, and the medical community that uh, that these sports would be in a better place.
0: Yeah, no question. You know, um you you mentioned in one of your books or maybe several of your books, um, Jay Coakley, uh sports sociologist from the University of Colorado who, um fantastic uh person and thinker on youth sports. And you said if you if you could create a youth sports czar in America, you would you'd probably <laughs> choose it to be Jay Coakley. Um And I agree. I mean, he's just uh, I was on a panel with him last month and, uh, you know, he's on our national advisory board. Just a brilliant guy. Um, What would you have a sports czar do? You got a sports czar who can make things happen. What would you have them do?
1: All right. Well, if the czar is all powerful and that would be a condition of having a czar then uh, my idea would be to reinvent new sports. We're starting from scratch, we're wiping the slate clean, and we're reinventing new sports with the emotional and physical needs of kids as our paramount concern and issue. And if we did that, I think what exists today, I mean, all of that would be unrecognizable to us. Nothing that we we well very little that we have in our present sports culture for kids would exist in this in this new world. We wouldn't have sports specialization at age seven. We wouldn't have kids um, traveling 300 miles to play a game when they could be playing uh, in their neighborhood in a rec league. We wouldn't have eighth and ninth graders being recruited. By college coaches, um, we wouldn't have the, the college recruiting uh, um, commerce, uh, all of the, the opportunities to spend money that now surround the college recruiting process. All of that would go away if sports truly was kid-centric and about kids first. I don't know. What I'd be curious to know, Jim, what your thoughts are about that. If if you could change something about new sports, what do you think are the important elements to change?
0: Well, um, thanks for saying that, and and that really stimulates some thoughts here. Uh, And the question, too, you know, from the beginning, Positive Coaching Alliance was about positive. You know, it, it came upon, it came about because I worked with emotionally disturbed, behavior problem kids, and we were trained. I was 20 years old. I was trained in a what I call a relentlessly positive approach with these very troubled kids, and they blossomed when they got that kind of approach. And then a few years later. Uh, my son is playing sports. When I'm a first-year student at Stanford Business School, and there's so much negativity, I could hardly believe it. And I just saw these very troubled kids who got that that dose of realness positivity thrive, and the kids who, you know, came from very privileged backgrounds who got all this negativity, all this pressure, uh, did not thrive. Um, so, you know, if I had, you know, a magic wand, I would say one of, one of our ideas that we promote a lot is the, the magic ratio. This comes from John Gottman, who's a psychologist at the University of Washington. He's used it with married couples, but there's also some research in uh, the classroom too, that the magic ratio is about five to one. If you have five positives, what we would call an energy uh, or an emotional tank filler, uh, about five positive statements for every criticism that magical things happens kids just uh start to uh you know they they can do things they can't do so if i my my answer to your question would be to move everybody up on their magic ratio you know that if if you're if you're 1 to 1 now one positive to one negative comment to move it up to 2 or 3 to 1 and, and you know more positivity and i actually i actually think about negativity as um, the equivalent of saturated fat in somebody's diet. You know, we're trying to cut out the fat. Uh, if we could cut out that negativity, now th- just doing that doesn't change a lot of the structural dynamics. Uh, but I'd be interested in, in just your reaction to that. If you know, if, if we could figure out a way to make coaches and parents more positive working with kids, would that have much impact?
1: No, I think. I think that would have a great impact. And just from my you know, anecdotally from my personal experience coaching, I think that kids respond so favorably to praise and to the approval of coaches and parents. Um, I've seen that happen, particularly that the less talented kids who are unsure of themselves and you know, the they're on the team maybe because the, the mom or dad thought it was a good idea, but they're not sure whether they really measure up in some ways. Those kids really blossom when they they feel that they're accepted. Uh, you know, whatever their skill level is, that they're appreciated and accepted for that. I, I love working with the the kid who um is coming from, you know, a place where he, he's not sure he even belongs on the team. Those are the kids yeah. I like to hang out with.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I when I was 20 years old, I worked at a, a summer camp, uh, Camp O'Wendigo in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I had this little chubby kid who, uh, I don't feel like I went out of my way to be nice to him or anything, but I treated him okay, I guess, because at the end of the camp, his, his mother said, oh, man, Danny just loved being with you. You were so kind to him. and and um, you know, it's like, whoa! I want to I want to look out for those kids in the in the future, and and really be intentional about helping them uh, have a good experience because everybody gloms on to the kid who's got talent, um, and it's those kids who who kind of get lost in the shuffle. Where I think coaches can have the biggest impact.
1: What you know, when I was president of our local. Uh, Rec Baseball League here. We we would often say to the coaches, you know, we don't care if you're seven and zero or zero and seven or three. 3- that really is not a measure for us of how successful you've been. We're much more interested in how many of the kids on your team want to come back and play next year. And if if that's yep. every kid or nearly every kid, then you had one hell of a year. And I really believe that that the kids who um, just feel good about being part of something, whether that their team wins or loses, those are the kids who are are going to come back and look, are really getting something more valuable out of it than whether they can, you know, throw a curveball or hit the ball the right field.
0: You know, I I did a podcast interview with John Gordon recently, the uh, author of the Energy Bus and a, a bunch of other bestsellers, and afterwards he introduced me to a, a woman who's uh Kate Level is her name, and she's a, a lacrosse coach in in Georgia, and she did this little experiment. She went through a whole season without saying anything critical anything negative to her team <clears throat> and if they they made a mistake she didn't comment on it they just she's talking about what we're going to do next and and uh, she told me i had I this visual of she told me um that one of the parents of her of one of her kids said <clears throat> that they saw the two teams that were competing uh the other team was uh sitting on one side of the field and the, the girls had their heads down and the, the coach was just you know pointing his finger and kind of you know yelling at him and then they looked over at Kate's team and the girls had their arms around each other and they were laughing and having a really good time and of course which team do you think won that game um yeah i just I feel like you know i want to go back to something you said earlier about uh football uh and the people who who really believe that football for younger younger boys is is crucial to their development and i i think some of it is about fear i still remember when i was a sophomore junior freshman sophomore junior somewhere playing high school football you know i weighed about 130 pounds maybe and anybody who was 160 pounds was a lineman um and i remember we'd have to you know get in line and run against another guy who and almost always that person was bigger than me and i just hated it i was so afraid and i think um I think that's one of the things going on with football. It's we there's just no escaping the fact that there's physical fear. And uh, uh that with that physical fear, if you have a really positive supportive coach, it can really be a, a transcendent experience. Um of course, if you have a nasty, snarly, uh win at all cost coach and you you're, you're trying to deal with that fear. It can be a awful experience as, as well. So I think that fear part of football is one of the things that people recognize that may be part of its value. Well, I'm not anti-football.
1: I, I think football is a great sport. And if anything, we should be encouraging more kids to play all sports, including football. Um, yeah. including, spent, girls. Yeah, including girls. Including um, girls. But having spent 18 months Um, hanging out with Robert Cantu and having spoken to a number of his patients who either have suffered concussions or um, months after their concussion are still struggling with symptoms related to post-concussion syndrome, I, I think you can't help but wonder whether kids would be better off playing football but deferring the tackling aspect of football until they're just physically mature and their bodies are ready for that. And um, yep. you don't have to speak to too many parents whose kids have, you know, experienced concussions and complications from concussions to really, you know, question whether tackle football is a good idea for the youngest kids.
0: You know, I think you know Tom Ferry, a ESPN investigative reporter, who uh, sure. has been heading up heading up this Aspen Institute uh, Project Play. And uh, you know, a couple of, there are about eight what they call um, plays, eight pillars on which they want to re-envision youth sports. And of course, I say they, but Positive Coach Alliance is part of that and supportive of it. Um, and going back to the sports entrepreneur, one of the one of the ideas is you know, bringing bringing back the rec league, <clears throat> so it's not just all you know kids who can't play on the travel teams get left behind. And the other idea was. Um, having a club that does multiple sports so um you know let's say you're a baseball guy i'm a basketball guy and we have a friend who's a soccer guy let's get together and create our own club where the kids will play soccer in the fall, basketball in the winter, and baseball in the spring. And I, I met a young guy uh, who's actually a very successful business guy, and he's he's in a sports management program now, and he wanted to do an internship with Positive Coaching Alliance, which we want, you know, we're going to want to do one. And he was, he really got intrigued with this idea of of creating a club that would be multi, multi-sports, that would give you really good training. I mean, that's part of what what the selling hope is, you know, I played professional baseball and I'm going to give your kid great training. Um, but it doesn't have to be baseball year round. And I, I, so when I think about what the hope is, I, I often think about that if we could get, if if there could be some youth sports entrepreneurs who take this kind of different direction to create a, um, you know, your idea of reinventing youth sports, that they do a, a club that, that helps move us in that direction. Yeah, that
1: I mean that's a back to the future idea. That is encouraging kids to play three sports or more during the year. Um, I think it's a good idea. I think a, a lot of the ideas that have come out of Project Play are good ideas. Um, I, I also think that many of us are saying pretty much the same thing. I think Jay Coakley and Jim Thompson and Tom Ferry and Aspen are saying pretty much the same thing, which is let's return sports to kids. And yeah. kids should be kind of at the center of all of our considerations when we're talking about um, kind of re-engineering new sports. But the only thing I would add to that is I think that we need to uh, speak to parents in a way that we haven't before. And for me, the message needs to be, The following. We need to say to parents, look, you want your child to be the best athlete they can be. That's important to you and to every parent. What we're doing now is not helping you achieve that goal. In fact, if anything, it's creating obstacles for your child. Either, you know, if you're on the most competitive track and your kid is specializing, then they're more likely to suffer an overuse injury and be sidelined and maybe not be able to continue in the sport or they're burned out. If your kid is less competitive and still wants to compete, you know, some of those kids can't even find a place to play when they're 12 or 13, because there are very few rec league opportunities for those kids after the age of 11 or 12. So, I think that has. To, I think it has to be a message of enlightened self-interest to the parents. Yeah. What we're doing now really doesn't work for kids, and that's why we have a 70% dropout rate by 13. Because what we're offering kids really is not in their interest, and they're telling us by leaving sports in, in a pretty alarming uh, way. So that's what I would like to add to the message. Explain to parents that. The system we have now, it, it may seem like the best system for your kid, but the evidence, to the extent that we have it, suggests just the opposite.
0: Yeah, that's that's brilliant. So, Mark, before we uh, wrap this up, is there anything that you would like to say that we haven't touched on yet?
1: Yes, Jim. I, I'd like to just say a word about the phenomenon of, of overuse injuries in youth sports. 50%, one out of every two reported injuries in youth sports is the result of overuse, just kids doing the same thing over and over and over again until they're just pushed through their physical limits and they get hurt. And you know, a big factor in this is specialization, as we know, you know kids playing one sport year-round. And I, I spent, in the reporting of, of Until It Hurts, I spent a really interesting day with Frank Job who was um, a remarkable surgeon who uh, was the inventor of Tommy John surgery, invented the surgery in 1974 to save the career of a major league pitcher whose name was Tommy John. And it was so interesting because when we spent our day together, we talked a lot about the fact that kids, sometimes um, high school kids, and sometimes kids were not even yet in high school were having Tommy John surgery, and, and I asked Frank Job how he felt about that. And he was he was just beside himself, um, so disappointed that the surgery that he had developed for adults to save the career of major league pitchers was now being used to um, repair the elbows of, of high school kids and, and even younger kids. So, you know, I think there's a lot we can do to protect our kids from, from – Injuries that um, that are, are really not necessary. Um, there's just one other thing I'd like to say about that. My own son had Tommy John surgery when he was 18 years old, and so I have feel a really personal connection to this. and And I, I really feel that if I had done more to um, uh, protect my son from uh, seasons that went on too long, and um, you know, demands that really shouldn't have been made of him as a young pitcher, that he wouldn't have had this injury, and that um, his his career in baseball would have uh, gone on a, a few years longer than it did. So I, I think this is an area that, that we as parents need to be more mindful of. It's fun watching your kid pitch and strike out all the other 11 and 12-year-olds, but there are also risks associated with that. And we've got to do a better job, I think, of of protecting our kids from injury in that way
0: you know mark what strikes me is uh you're talking about the idea of having every youth sports organization having a board member whose kids are no longer in the league Uh, to a certain extent that's what you've done with your your writing career it's like you've gone through this process and you've made some mistakes and um, you have some (laughs) rueful things you're rueful about but you're 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 sharing that with other people so that they, they can learn from your, uh, your experience. So I'm really grateful for that. Well, I'm trying to get it out of
1: my system, Jim, but 10 years and, and I'm still talking about it. So I guess that's just not meant to be. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's good. Um, Mark, this was fabulous. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA one-on-one. Be sure to visit positivecoach.org to download more podcasts.